he doesn't get any positive thing from his OEM customer at all. It's a big, big disappointment. They shared all the way when they started the project. They measured all the furnaces. They have done hell of a work. Do they get the upper hand in any kind of this discussion? No, time is not there. But in the same time... But let me stop you right there. Isn't then the message, don't go into sustainable route because nobody cares? everybody welcome back we're here again fabian niklas and stefan setsdrum for a new episode and today we are going to talk about sustainability in the foundry industry and is there a chance to make money of it how should we treat it what do you think will happen around this so everybody talks about sustainability oh we have to go more green we have to increase our scrap rate and then also cut down the carbon footprint yeah that's the topic everywhere but let's see how you make money besides making your slides green. Or or is it possible to make any money? Is, is this just a new ISO TS 14,000 blah, 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 that you need a stamp somewhere and, and uh, then everybody will be happy? Or will they chase you for greenwashing if you are not behaving correctly? Yeah, greenwashing is a big topic because greenwashing is really expensive. It's way easier to start at the beginning of the chain, improve your production and then cut the carbon footprint there instead of buying woods somewhere to offset your carbon footprints. Yeah, that's that's kind of covering things up. I was sitting with a customer. Now I speak in my own interest. You know that I work for for Comtech Realcasting, and they are super excited because they can go from primary alloy, 15 kilos cold base, down to something way below one. So everybody's happy until one guy in the room raises his hand and say, yeah, but you know what? From that, we get the ingot into the foundry. We start to produce another 10 kilograms of carbon dioxide. So we have the 15 and then we add 10. The one kilogram of the component is 25. Not super exactly calculated, uh, depending on the foundry, depending on the furnaces, depending on everything else. That leads us to the fact that we need to make another disclaimer, right, Fabian? Yeah, that's a bit of commercial break. So I'm currently working on a system because you nearly need to track your carbon footprint throughout the process chain. So how much resources go in there in terms of gas, electricity, cooling water, all of that needs to be factored in your carbon footprint. And then it comes down to your production planning, to your maintenance department. If all the seals are leaking, you're leaking energy, you're leaking money. And that's yeah. something you can track now. And that's a big advantage to save on. As you can hear, Fabian is, is eager to offer this to the market. So we will stay away from two topics in this uh, nugget. We will stay away from real casting and uh, dear Fabian's new software that <laughs> probably will launch some, somewhere in time. You know, Fabian correct, it will be sooner rather than later. Anyway, anyhow, sustainability. To be a little bit drastic now, dear Fabian, I have a feeling that there are two things. One, a lot of talking. Number two, a high level of ignorance, because this is a new topic for many people. Do you agree? Oh, definitely. And also it's something like, oh, yeah, we're doing something like X, Y, Z, and we're already good. No, it is something new. You have to think differently. It's not like continuing what you already did. Yeah, but, but my, my point is, 
Number one, should one start now or be dragged along when the time comes when it starts to cost money? Because the only company I, I know where this actually costs money internally is Volvo Truck. That's the only one I hear that has a system for measuring this from the design phase and onwards. The second one that I really understand is, is chased by the customers is actually medical equipment manufacturers. That seems to have a problem to be able to offer their equipment to, to big hospital chains. But, but this is a super small part of, of um, the caster volume. It might be the third one that's more interesting, telecom. Telecom seems to be more sensitive. They're actually doing something. But when I talk to telecom people, and, and believe me, I do a lot, I have the feeling that it's the same thing. There's a lot of talk. There's a pressure. The CEO has said, okay, we're going green here on the um, yeah, guess what? I'm a Swedish guy. But there is no internal calculation or affecting a personal bonus yet. I think it would come, but but yet there is not. So that leaves us down to the, the automotive industry. And I have a clear picture of how this is going to play out. I, but I'd rather hear, hear your version first, Fabian. Yeah, automotive industry, it's all about sense in the purchase process. So if someone is a few cents cheaper on a thousand pieces, they get it because as a purchaser, you've got the goal to cut out as much money as possible from your suppliers. And then when it ramps up and the PPAP process is done, that purchase is on a totally different section somewhere else. And mm. that's usually the feeling. It's not like talking about everybody, but the vast majority of my experience is something like that. I think you're absolutely correct there, Fabian, but I think you're talking more when the big guys are talking to the high level foundry groups. Am I right? You're referring to, to when Daimler is talking to Neamak and, and Jero Fischer or, or Volvo cars are, are chasing around uh, August for what they actually buy direct. I'm more concerned about the waste majority of the automotive foundries because they work for the tier ones. Yep, but it's the same thing. The tier ones get pushed down in price that they have to live off something as well. So it get pushed down even further. And also with the current oversupply because of the reduced parts in the powertrain section, it's getting really hard to find the parts and then prices go down in oversupply. That's quite easy. Yeah, but I, believe me, I've been living in, in that world, being a, a main supplier to a tier one. And here comes my story. It might be different. This is one of the major tier ones. But if you look at boundaries that supporting, I don't know, Male, Bosch, Valeo, Continental, you name it, there are like 15 of the tier ones. We were one of the biggest foundries and we turned something like 12 million euros. That's not much, right? Yep. And it turns out that for, for this segment, we were the biggest one and they had a zillion of small ones. And what I learned from that time was if the automotive OEM, the car maker, said jump, the tier one took up the phone and shouted jump to us as well. Everything just follows through. So when the OEM is going to say that, hey, guys, you're doing a subsystem for our vehicles, please come back and tell us how much carbon dioxide is this driving, they will just flush this downstream. And the question is, do you need to be prepared or will you have time enough to do it then? That's point number one. Point number two, this will be a costly exercise. And what do we think about the cost development? If I am right and there is a big ignorance out there, you will need to hire a consultant. But you will be sitting in the same boat as everybody else. So guess the hourly rate of that consultant. Yeah. It will not go down. No, but there's also another point. If you say, okay, we want to cut the carbon footprint and re re and increase the recycled content. So you have to go on the secondary market to buy recycled material. 
And if you look at the card, because you need there's difference between post-industrial and post-consumer scrap. If you go to the post-consumer scrap, which is the zero kilogram CO2 per kilo aluminium, then you will have the issue that everybody wants to have it at the same time. And if you don't have your scrap screams already, you don't get any. And the other thing is, if you look at the current 20, 30-year-old cars that are in these recycling processes, what are the aluminium in there? You Let have, me guess, ADC-12. <laughs> if you're lucky, mostly it's 226, so 3.5% copper. You won't, don't want to have it near your casting alloys. Then you have your sheet metal, about 05 to 2% iron, 01 yeah. to 2% silicon in whatever combination. And then you have to add a lot of silicon. Silicon is quite dirty in the carbon footprint. Yeah, and that rolling mill and extrusion and, and you refer to having a lot of iron. Hint from the coach, that will be sucked up by the telecom industry. Believe me, and others doing formal management things because then they need iron, they need a, the low silicon. And I already see that the price point for, for these kind of alloys Mm, it's, it's it's not cheap, I can tell you. It's actually more expensive than primary. Exactly. Also, we have to consider that all the sheet metal producers and sheet metal users have the same requirements. So they want to have their sheet metal recycled as well. Yeah, and then you come into something. I made a calculation the other week. Super rough. I took one casting machine and then I did a zillion of versions. Like a 500-ton machine, I, I, I put something like 200 kilos per per hour in consumption. Mm-hmm. And then I took a mid-size 1800-something, and then I took a 3,500. And then I split this on uh, European uh, secondary average, primary China, primary somewhere Germany. And then you, you can imagine I ha- had a lot of these. And the, the interesting thing is you, st- you tend to notice that, yeah, you can see on this graph, it's very easy to, to make some shortcuts. Take China, for example, coal-based primary, 16 kilos carbon dioxide. And then you say, yeah, I go with recycling. Mm? Recycling, when you use the power from a uh, coal-based power, all of a sudden you end up in something, what, 2.5. Average in Europe is 0.9 for a 2 to 6. Exactly, but then also it depends what scrap you have. If you have a post-industrial scrap, that will come with the carbon footprint of the production of that scrap. So that doesn't bring you anything if you have like 16 to 25 kilogram of CO2 per kilo aluminium. It brings you something if it's post-consumer scrap, and then it comes down to house recycling. And in addition, if you bring it into the European Union after 2026, you will have to pay taxes on your carbon footprint that you import, and that will cost you a hell of a lot of money. Uh, but then you can start to, to think, uh, what should one do? And I know that I'm very aggressive and, and I'm always uh, sounding like I have a huge fortune to spend in my foundry. Uh, I don't even have a fortune or a foundry. But the interesting thing that I see people that actually reacted and, and they have totally different outcomes. Have one European manufacturer, he, he went all the way, you know, solar-based energy, and they, they are more or less carbon dioxide neutral. So what I refer to, you know, the 15 kilos from, from the, the alloy and the 10 kilos in the production of components, his 10 kilos are, are what, 0.5? Now, here comes the proof of your what you're saying, Fabian. He doesn't get any positive thing from his OEM customer at all. It's a big, big disappointment. They shared all the way when they started the project. They measured all the furnaces. They have done hell of a work. Do they get the upper hand in any kind of this discussion? No, time is not there. But in the same time... But let me stop you right there. Isn't then the message, don't go into sustainable route because nobody cares? 
I, I don't know. I mean, is it just too early? But we were speaking about 2026, the CBAM, where you have to pay the carbon target tax based on the difference Europe and the import, right? So, so if you Correct. import from, from India, you pay three kilograms of, of a carbon dioxide per kilogram. And in Europe, it's, let's say, one. So then you have two kilograms, and that's 0.2 euros per kilo component that you have to pay. Uh, will it, this hurt? Well, I, I mean, if you look at company like Bosch, just guessing now, their friends at Bosch, please shout at me afterwards. But if I understand it correctly, they're buying for almost half to one billion of euros in, in castings. So, and, and where does this come from? Majorities, I bet, China, India, Vietnam, uh, Malaysia, pretty much like that. Let's say half of it. Then you have a problem all of a sudden. Because the, the guys that are cheap, especially in India, I know this by heart because I work with it. In India, the industry standard is you, you do 500 kilos per batch or, or one ton of, of aluminum based on scrap and you use oil burners. So, so there is no way. By theory, you can do this 3.2, 3.5 kilogram of, of uh, carbon dioxide per kilogram of alloy. But, but given a you know a little bit used of furnace and blah blah blah. So, so the whole industry in India then has to invest in in um, furnaces driven by electricity, and then buy the electricity from a power plant, and then you will have an increase of the energy cost apparently. So, so given that fact, I, I know a guy that's doing the same exercise as the European guy I was talking to. And he has, you know, he's invited to discussions with customers. So it depends where you are, how, how big the ache is. If you're already in, within the European Union, you, you probably are quite safe, right? It seems like that you're safe because you're not impacted by the taxes from the import. You're already in it. Yeah, but if you're a purchaser... Pier one, head office somewhere in Germany. You are sitting on the satellite uh, somewhere, let's say Poland or, or Sweden or, or I don't know, France maybe. You import, your, your account is importing um, something like 50, 100 million euros. And you have your suppliers in India, Vietnam, whatever. Then you have a problem, I would say, because at, at a given point of time, that equation, that decision will be made. And I think the big car makers, they're pretty filled with the task of understanding this and joining Catena X and, and um, we had to explain that, but, but to, to add up how much carbon dioxide is a Volkswagen, a Volvo, a Daimler or an Audi. And when they have this figure, they will start to scratch their heads and say, hmm, how do we bring it down? And we see that this is happening, that exercise already now. Exactly, but then it has to set clear goals, what it's worth to go more sustainable. Because as you said, it's a bit more expensive maybe in certain areas, but as soon as the taxation comes in, it's the cheapest way to go. But it doesn't really happen between Christmas break of 2025 and the first day of work and the 3rd of January 2026. You cannot do it in that meantime. You have to start now to prepare. Yeah, but then you, you say you have to start now, but... but Okay, let's take the example. I'm a purchaser, uh, tier one. All the parts are three, four, five hundred grams. The cost goes up 0.2 euros. Is that the factor? I mean, I mean, the part from India is so cheap in comparison to, to what you would have to pay in uh, France, Germany, Sweden, um, Romania anyway, because guess what the labor cost in India? Yeah, it's, that's the thing. So the, in the cynical world, that tier one will buy, you know, that wood over there and, and plant some trees and then it will be carbon neutral. Then now we're talking about greenwashing again. Now we're talking about greenwashing. But is and this it, the concern of a foundry? That's the question. That's the question, but it can be really expensive. There's now in Switzerland, there's the example of the Swiss Post. They said, okay, we want to go more sustainable. And they bought for 60 million euros, they bought a wood somewhere in eastern Germany and now they are sustainable. 
Yeah, that's great. You know that Sweden was carbon neutral uh, 2022. Cal- calculation came out a few weeks ago because we had so much wood. Sorry, yeah. you guys that don't have wood. I'm sorry, that was a sidetrack. I'm throwing in where I think it's important. If you are a foreign foundry outside Europe, and if you are engaged in new designs for new systems for electrical vehicles, then having a good plan for CO2 and doing something it doesn't need to be done in the 2026, I can assure you. Then it is a point to do this. Or here comes the big shoe thing. If you are a manufacturer or a buyer of high volume, high weight parts, then it becomes really a factor. Sure, as higher the math is that you are importing or the amount of parts you're importing, it doesn't matter if it's one casting with 100 kilos or 100 castings with one kilo. The mass and the aluminum is basically the same. Yeah, but if if you look at uh, the the management system of big corporations uh, and you see the price increase of 0.2 euros for something small, yeah, okay, you have the volumes, mm, that's a concern. But if you are doing something where you definitely need to have high requirements and high weights, then it starts to cost because then you have the problem with what to use as you are using a primary alloy. Mm But so then it doesn't really make mathematical thing if it's just the same amount of aluminium that you're importing. It doesn't matter if you have one piece or 100 pieces with the same weight. Yeah, but I think people will watch the big things. If you have a subframe in a vehicle, 35 kilos. Then it, should, it makes definitely sense to could tackle the big parts first. Uh, yeah, but in my former career, this is interesting that we have an argument here. In my former career, I was working for bigger corporations and we were super KPI driven. So all the top management were chasing us on the big steps, regardless what we did, you know, tied capital or, or uh, whatever KPI you take. And if you then are the purchaser of a subframe that's supposed to go in, what, 500,000 <laughs> units, and your colleague is doing a, a small, tiny, I don't know, hydrogen pump, still 500,000 units, you will be the one that will be toasted mostly because you have this ongoing project and hmm, you really need to do something about it. And if we speak about parts like that, you have probably a, a quite high elongation requirement. So in the beginning, what the designer does, he says that, yeah, this should be A356, it should be a primary, low on copper, blah, 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 low on iron. Uh, this is what we need. And, and you will be squeezed between the properties and the sustainability. And then you have a problem because either you work like crazy on, on the process itself, I'm referring again to those 15 and 10 kilos and to make the 10 kilos smaller, but you still have 15 kilos for an Asian cold base primary alloy product. And, and how do you change over that? And then, then let's go to greenwashing, because if, if you call someone in Asia, it's probably quite easy that they will show you a certificate that, yeah, but you were using nuclear power, we use hydropower. How should you be able to check that? Yeah, it comes down to someone going there, having a universal certification and showing them what you buy. And then you need to trust basically what your energy supplier tells you. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to do if you don't know the regulations on site. You know, I learned from another project that there's a, a secondary market based on rolled aluminum that you take primary, you put it through the rolling wheel and you send, sell it as scrap because that actually has a higher margin than selling the primary. I definitely believe that high quality scrap with low impurities has a, definitely a higher price than the primary. 
Mm. So uh, we probably will see some argumentation around this and we will probably see an army of third part certificate people uh, that will switch the workplace from, from talking ISOTS and, and um, those kind of systems and they will show up after some kind of education to be the third party certification people. Yep. I mean, I mean uh, today people use Nofkibirtas and I think they're doing a great job, a terrific job in, in the projects I've been involved in, but they are just too few. Yeah, that's something that will come up that you have to do different sorts of certifications and it will be a wild ride until there's one common standard like with the ISO norms Hmm. until the American, the Asian and the European values are adjusted that there's one common standard all over the world. And the big question is why? I mean, the, the the thinking that I think I share with many of you out there is that working this, of course, we have Greta and we have the big movement and we have zero emissions and, and, and all that. But I think it's vital for car makers to be able to show this because the new generation of, of car buyers, people, they are more sensitive to this. So if you're standing there and watching a, a one car with a super high CO2 emission for the production of it, and then you have the other one, which is showing very nice numbers, you will have a hard time coming home to your family and argue that we should we should buy the dirty one. Exactly. And there's also generally the trend that a newer generation doesn't buy that many cars because the car is not a status symbol anymore. It's just for mobility. I don't get that. I'm an old guy. I live in Sweden. I, I drive 55,000 K every year. I, I got three sons and, and two out of three is not interested in buying a car. How is that possible? I am born 1970. Yep. I don't know. I like my car as well. Yeah. I mean, the biggest dream when I was 20 was a V8 engine. Oh, did you get one? No, no, couldn't afford it. And and if I walk into a car sales guy and say, hello, do you have something with a V8? It will look strangely on me. <laughs> But going back to the main topic is if you have a clientele not buying that many cars and are more sensitive to the carbon emissions and you're the one with the dirtier car or at least the first one marketing, hey, our car is a carbon footprint of that amount. It consumes that much of electricity, gas or whatever. And then it comes down to a decision criteria, which is the cleaner car, which has the nice amenities inside. And then that's the decision making. It's not about, oh, it has one ring, it has four rings, it has a star or whatever. It's a totally different decision tree. I would be terrified if I was working on a marketing. <laughs> I mean, what are the chances that your competition will will find out that you have your main supplier in Asia is greenwashing <laughs> and all of a sudden you have, I mean, remember Dieselgate? Yeah. Okay, that was probably more severe, but what did it cost Volkswagen? It cost billions. Yeah. Another thing I the learned... whole market to turn and kill yeah, basically yeah. a diesel engine. I know another European manufacturer, no names given, uh, was talking to my colleagues in China and, and they had a car crash and the car started to burn. It was an electrical car. The sales dropped with 98% the following quarter on that model. No one bought it. it it's so sensitive today. Yeah, a burning car, TikTok, whatever have you, and all of a sudden you actually don't have any sales. And imagine that, I mean, if you are, are busted with greenwashing, maybe not 98% down, but maybe 25, and then it's really a problem. Definitely. But also it comes down to, is it a top-down issue or is it a bottom-up issue? So if it's one founder doing it, I don't think the blowout will be that big. But if it's directed top-down, then it will be an issue. 
Yeah, but you don't want to be that foundry with that subframe and get busted for greenwashing. If you are an important foundry, if, if you do a something 340 grams in the left door, they will shout at you and, and they will threaten you, especially the tier ones. But if you are a, a major player, then you have a problem because then everybody will shout at you and you probably will see some fees for it. So coming back to the original question to wrap this up, if you have a foundry, how should you react? And see if you follow me and see if you actually agree with me now. I would say like this, if you are doing high quality parts, high weights, high volumes, yeah, start now. If you are purchasing from uh, India, China, Malaysia, whatever, working purchasing, I would actually start to see and learn a lot of things now to be ready when it funnels down from the car OEMs. But if I'm a small family-owned company in Europe, I probably relaxed a little bit more. That's interesting because I see some of the OEMs already start that you have to have a certain carbon footprint in the alloy you buy, certain recycling content. If you don't reach a minimum level, no purchaser gonna see your offer. Yeah, yeah, so I'm wrong. You actually have to do the homework even if you're working and melting things in Europe. Yeah, so basically it's going to just two OEMs that do it that way. If you're not delivering to these two, mm. you're fine. And then no, it's you're probably easy. right. I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so we're both right, depending on the way. But if you are an Indian company and you have 95% of, of uh, your sales towards European organizations, companies, what would you do then? I would say work like hell and get out of the oil melting thing. Yeah, because if you're already with oil burners or whatever, it's quite easy to have a big impact. Yes, yes, yes. So to wrap this up, what are we saying? Take it seriously. Learn something. Take it seriously. Learn a lot and be prepared to whatever extent you are have to do it. If you already have to get things in motion or just lay out the plan, what you're going to do if it hits you. But mm. definitely start preparing. Let that be the final word of this nugget. Definitely. See you next and episode. And See you uh, next episode. Have a nice you. day. Bye. Bye.